1: Well, Welcome back and good afternoon. Welcome aboard along the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday afternoon. Our number in Calgary 403-974-8255 in Edmonton 780-496-0063. So much more to get to in this hour, but a couple of important conversations I want to get to off the top in this hour. And our next guest uh, with some important comments last week on both of these matters, an opinion piece in the uh, Globe and Mail looking at the overlap between lockdown agitators and hate groups, but also adding his voice to a letter that was published in the prestigious journal Science last week on investigating the origins of COVID-19. I think there needs to be all kinds of questions asked in terms of how countries like Canada responded to this pandemic but also the question of where this virus came from in the first place. Did it make the the jump from animal maybe to a different animal, then to humans? Or did it potentially escape from a lab? The Wuhan Institute for Virology is in Wuhan, China, which is where, as best we can tell, this virus originated. And at this point, we can't rule that out. So joining us to talk about these matters, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. David Fissman. He's a professor in the Division of Epidemiology, the Dalla Lana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Dr. Fissman, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks so much for having me on.
1: So in terms of the, the piece in uh, science last week, and let's talk about that on investigating the origins of COVID-19. I mean, it, it seems non-controversial to say, you know, everything should be on the table. But wh- why is it important to say this?
2: You know, I I, I think that's uh, that's a great point, and and we really are in a funny place
1: yeah.
2: uh, right now globally to, to 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 have you know a statement like that actually be controversial. Simply to say, let's have uh, a, an objective, arms-length, non-political investigation into what the origins of the pandemic uh, were. The, the fact that that's garnering media attention and, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of controversy, I think speaks uh, it speaks volumes about how politicized this has become, and it, and it shouldn't be. This is obviously a hugely disruptive um, issue worldwide, and in order to prevent a recurrence of this event, we need to know how this started. Um, the WHO has already nominally answered this question, although even the director general of the WHO has said that you, you know they, they maybe need to do a bit better. One of the difficulties with the WHO group that did, did their initial investigation is that it included people uh, from outside China who are collaborators with the Wuhan Institute of Virology as part of the investigative team. So there's a clear conflict of interest there. Um, and, and I think that undercut a lot of the credibility of that investigation. They didn't really have access to, you, you know, things like logs from the lab in terms of uh, uh, what was going on with different viral strains. So, you, you, you know, you can't really come to any conclusions. What was interesting about the WHO report is not, notwithstanding the fact that it was pretty uh, a pretty superficial investigation of the lab itself, the only mention of lab release or accidental lab release as a as possible origin of the pandemic appeared you know for a couple of pages in a very long report i think 300 plus page report uh, under the the header of conspiracy theories well <laughs> you, you know that, that that sort of bespeaks a, a desire to sort of you know close the door on that idea and move on but it's important to give it some thought um, and maybe I'll just stop talking for for a moment. Let see if you have a follow up question. Well, sure,
1: but I mean, yeah. It, it, look, there, there clearly are some conspiracy theories that, that get us into this realm, or the idea that this was you know deliberately released, or you know we've seen a lot of focus in the U.S. on trying to link uh, you know Dr. Fauci to all of this. But aside right. from all of that, right? There, there's a lot here that we need to better understand.
2: Yeah. So, so, so bat coronaviruses. Um, you know, SARS-1, which we experienced in Canada in 2003, was a bat coronavirus, very, very disruptive. And these are, these are important. These have been recognized for a long time as important potential human pandemic pathogens, I mean, human pandemic viruses. So uh, back, I think it was 2013, 2014, um, uh, there was an outbreak of SARS in uh, a group of minors in China. Uh, you know, who are exposed to, miners get exposed to, you know, bat droppings. There's bats in mines. Uh, uh, these guys got sick. It was a small group. And uh, a, a group from Wuhan Institute of Virology went to that mine and collected samples, uh, uh, you, you know, biological samples and isolated viruses from them of bat coronaviruses. So... <laughs> You know at least one of those strains was very similar, the most similar known viral strain to what ultimately came to cause uh, cause this pandemic. so uh, we know that this lab was working very actively on bat coronaviruses. It was sort of a global center for work on the very virus that's gone on to cause the global pandemic and um this lab is is literally related it literally um uh, located a few hundred feet from the putative location of the start of the pandemic. This is the the, the, mm-hmm. the uh, seafood market in Wuhan, China. So, you know, you've got a seafood market where this whole thing is said to have started up. And right across the street from the seafood market, you've got a, a, a major con- concentration of, of uh, bat uh, SARS coronaviruses in a lab in a lab that we know had some some issues in terms of laboratory safety, appropriate disposal of waste, and so forth, it's not very hard to come up with a series of accidental missteps that could have led to either an outbreak within the lab or, um, uh, you know, waste from the lab um, uh, uh, infecting animals and humans in in a market across the street. And that's really important because... As we come out of this, and we're going to come out of this, and it, it, things are pretty promising right now for Canada in terms of vaccination, you know, uh, we're going to see the we're going to see the end of this pandemic. But if this pandemic started as a laboratory accident, it's very important that the take-home message from this pandemic is not: let's go out and collect all these dangerous viruses that are out there in nature, concentrate them in labs, and do do experiments on them with. Uh, you know, humanized laboratory animals to see, to see what, a, you know, to learn about how to prevent the next pandemic. If that's actually what created this pandemic, we need to know about that so that we don't create the next pandemic accidentally.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, let me uh, ask you about the, uh, the, the other piece you, you were a co-author of last week. This was in the Globe and Mail with uh, Bernie Farber looking at some of the overlap between, uh, as, as the piece describes it, lockdown agitators and some fairly notorious uh, hate groups and individuals. Why is it important from your perspective to, to call attention to that? How is that affecting the, the discourse in Canada?
2: I, I think it's striking that some of the people who are pushing uh, um, uh, some of the messaging around uh, uh, you know, the anti-public health messaging right now have a track record of um, acting in ways and saying things that are very, very harmful to groups in the population. And I think that the pivot, I, I don't work in this space as my job, but the Canadian Anti-Hate Network does. And it's been striking to folks over there the extent to which there's sort of a one-to-one overlap between some of the real uh, 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 anti-lockdown, anti-vaxxer agitators in Canada and folks who prior to the pandemic were very much involved with white supremacism, uh, neo-Nazism, and hate. And I think the question that Canadians need to ask themselves is is we know that there's a very well-funded disinformation effort targeted at undermining Canada's uh, pandemic response. Some of that, CSIS has said this publicly, that at least some of that is actually being funded by threat actors from overseas, potentially like foreign intelligence services. If we look within Canada and you look at people who have a history of engaging in activities designed to harm some Canadians and they've now pivoted seamlessly from things like Holocaust denial, promoting racism, trying to undermine the pandemic response. I think it's important to ask, you know, <laughs> who are these folks? What are okay. their big goals? And uh, are they actually trying to harm us in a different way? Is this just a seamless pivot to try to s- achieve the same ends uh, via a different path?
1: Yeah, I do wonder too, and I, I think some of it might be, you know, just as a way of, of reaching certain groups or certain individuals that maybe wouldn't necessarily be interested in those other kinds of agendas, but there's there's a captive audience out there, because there, there is genuine frustration and confusion. I mean, why do we have all these rules? Do we still need all of these rules? Why can't this all just end? There are a lot of well-meaning people out there, I think, who are asking those questions, and so... I think it's an audience that some of these individuals and groups are, are trying to tap into and to maybe, you know, bring them to their side and perhaps expose them to some of the, these other agendas. I think it's important that, you know, we recognize that. And I think it's important that we you know, continue down this path of hopefully getting out of this and making a lot of this a moot point, ideally. I
2: think, that, I think that's right on. I think you have people right now who are feeling scared, people who are feeling frustrated. Uh, people who are feeling a lot of uncertainty. And, you, you know, I, th- I think movements like this have a, have a history of doing best at times like that. If you look at the history of, of uh, movements on the far right and the far left, they tend to do best during disruptive times. So I yeah. think you've got an excellent
1: point. Yeah, absolutely. We'll leave it there. Uh, as I mentioned, this piece is up at the Globe and Mail.com, and uh, this letter published at ScienceMag.org last week. Uh, Dr. Fissman always great chatting with you. Thanks so much for making some time for us. Yeah, here. likewise. Thanks for having me on. All the best. That is uh, Dr. David Fissman. He's a professor in the Division of Epidemiology, Dallalena School of Public Health, University of Toronto. So back to the point about uh, the situation in Wuhan. There's a piece that's been going around from journalist uh, Nicholas Wade uh, that, that lays a lot of this out and, and makes a, a compelling argument for why we should at least be looking at lab leak as a plausible hypothesis. Now, a lot of it gets into the weeds uh, around the specifics of the virus, and there have been some, some other experts in this field who have suggested that you know, maybe some of this is, has been misrepresented, or that some features of this virus that are described as unusual are maybe not that unusual. But the point is that, I mean, this is a bat coronavirus. There there are not large numbers of bats in Wuhan. We have not found an intermediate host that would have transferred it from bats to humans. We found that with SARS, as he mentioned, we found that with MERS. The fact that we haven't found that yet with this virus is worth noting. Challenge here, I think, from, from China's perspective, And let's be clear, I mean, we're talking about the government of China because there have been very brave whistleblowers in China throughout this whole situation right from the get go. So this is not about the people of China. This is about the Chinese government. Is it that they have something to hide or is it simply that they want to advance the narrative, not that this is where the pandemic originated, but rather the the notion that they are the conquerors of the pandemic? Where I want to begin, though, and I think it's an important conversation as Canada continues to to roll out its uh, vaccine campaign. The numbers are are indeed looking encouraging. But uh, look, there's no shortage of anti-vaccine sentiment out there. And uh, you see plenty of this uh, disinformation on social media. There's an interesting new report out this week looking at where this is coming from. But also what can be done to counter it. Now, this new report is kind of a follow up of sorts, a sequel of sorts to a report that came out not too long ago, identifying what it described as the disinformation dozen. That just 12 anti-vaxxers are responsible for the bulk of anti-vaccine content on social media, which is frustrating in a way. But I suppose at one level it's encouraging because we know where it's coming from. We know what to target. So what are these big tech companies, these social media giants, doing to counter all of this? What are they doing about this content on their platforms? And so this follow-up study is an opportunity, I think, to take a look at whether anything is being done about this. This comes from the Center for Countering Digital Hate. You can find them online at counterhate.com. Joining us to talk about the disinformation dozen and the sequel report. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Imran Ahmed, who is CEO of the Center for Countering Digital Hate. Imran, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, thanks, Rob.
1: Uh, so let's talk about, first of all, in, in the process of identifying these these 12 in the first place and tracking where a lot of this comes from, because it does seem like there's a disproportionate amount of content coming from just these 12 sources. How did you pinpoint that initially?
3: Well, the truth is we've been tracking the anti-vaccine industry, which is a small number of highly motivated, organized individuals backed up by their own companies and network of charities and other organizations that they use to spread misinformation about vaccines why do they do that they do it because they want to undermine faith in vaccines and in medical science so they can sell people their own false cures But we, uh, in our tracking work of this small but nevertheless powerful and, and as you said, like frustratingly disproportionately effective industry of anti-vaxxers who've managed to make millions of people vaccine hesitant, we we realised that there was this extraordinary uh, fact that 12 people produced two-thirds of the misinformation shares that we saw. And we thought, look, Let's try and focus in on these. disinformation dozen. doesn't see if we can get legislators, technology companies, others to to really mobilize, to to stop these bad actors from operating. And they're affecting not just the U.S., but the U.K., Canada, all around the world, these people, they're operating. And uh, that's what our campaign has been. What I mean, how are they so effective then? Look, these are digital. These are digital operators. They understand, and for, for a long time, they've been starved of attention because these are fringe people. They, they you know, their theories are, frankly, bananas. Um, I, 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 for my sins, I spent uh, the weekend reading the latest book by one of these anti-vaxxers, and it's. 150 pages of unintelligible nonsense of, yeah. you know, conspiracy theories that climate change was invented by um, a bunch of uh, elites that um, vaccines are are poison that they'll kill us all that the that you know I mean, all of us have taken a vaccine we should in their theories all be dead. Um, But uh, they've been effective because, starved of mainstream platforms, because they are bananas, they've become very good at using the one platform they have where they know they've got enormous reach, but there's no rules that are enforced properly, and that's social media
1: right, because this this latest study is as much about these social media platforms as it is about these twelve, and absent these social media platforms they would not have anywhere near the reach that they do so what what do you see as the responsibility you know with companies like facebook and, and Twitter when it comes to this kind of information
3: well there' been, there's been this extraordinary um, decision taken by social media companies over a period of years. And not just about anti-vax. I mean, let's not forget election misinformation, identity-based hatred. We know, for example, where the underlying misinformation that was spread around the Stop the Steal movement in the United States, where neo-Nazis feel they can operate with impunity. And that's social media companies. And because for, for them, it's really simple. Every eyeball on their platform is an extra dollar or two. Um, because they can sell adverts for people to see as they scroll through the content that they've come there to look at. And the social media companies have been really poor at dealing with misinformation historically, not just um, extremism, but anti-vax. In fact, last year in June, we started campaigning on this. And it sounds extraordinary, but they said anti-vax misinformation was not in breach of their rules on not being allowed to spread health-related misinformation. And they said it's fair comment. They've since changed their position thanks to some really dogged work by the Centre for Countering and Digital Hate and lots and lots of other folks. But also, um, they've not just changed their position on that. They've said that they have said initially that they wouldn't deplatform platform people for it. They're now starting to take action against the key bad guys as identified by the centre. But it's still not good enough. Let me give you an example. Facebook and Instagram are both owned by the same company. They're both owned by Mark Zuckerberg. And quite often what we find is Facebook will deplatform someone, say you can no longer use our platform to spread your lies that may cause people to harm to, to, to be harmed or even die. But Instagram won't take action, or Instagram will take action and Facebook won't. So what we're finding is inconsistent application of the rules that all the rest of us have to live by.
1: Where, where is that line between you know, having bad opinions and, and spreading dangerous information? Because a, a lot of this clearly is, is in the latter camp, but is, do you think the line is pretty clear?
3: Harm. Harm is the line. And it always has been. Like, even in John Locke's original, you know, conceptualization of the of the sanctity of the freedom of speech, he had the harm principle. He said that where someone's speech causes harm, that's when you have to start to think about it. And let's be honest about it. These aren't, public spaces, Facebook and Twitter, they decide what's on their platform. They deplatform people for all sorts of things, copyright violations, mm-hmm. for nudity, for example, for all sorts of things. They police their platforms. They don't allow Holocaust denial on Facebook, but they have been allowing content that might lead to us not being able to contain COVID. And I think that's what really changed over the year was people kind of went well hold on a second you're actually undermining this global attempt by all of us to follow the rules to try our hardest to protect each other and you guys are sitting there broadcasting misinformation on your platforms and profiting from it that's really really appalling and i think they've bowed to the moral pressure placed by lots and lots of normal people who have really been doing the right thing.
1: So, well, the progress has maybe been somewhat erratic. Has it been progress nonetheless? What, what have we seen over the past couple of months?
3: Well, look, there has been progress. And um, I mean, I, I'm very British, and I don't like taking credit for anything. But um, I try uh, – I, I look, uh, they weren't in that position a year ago. They weren't in that position six months ago of taking action. They are now taking action. And, you know, our last report, this disinformation doesn't, 12 attorneys general from states in the U.S., four members of the House of Representatives, three senators wrote to Facebook saying, we've read this report, it completely makes sense to us, we agree with it completely, do something. Like start taking action against these bad actors who are weaponising your platform. So what it's shown is that these companies do have the ability, the legal right, and in fact understand the moral framework that, that determines who gets to use their platform and who doesn't, who they get to profit from and who they don't and that they are willing to take action if they think that there's a threat to their business's reputation or to, to their finances. And so now it's about making sure that the precedent that they've set in this pandemic is one that they abide by. Snake oil salespeople should have no place on their platforms I and mean, it would be just as appalling if it was being broadcast on your station you'd be held liable for it but right. these platforms seem to think they can profit from it but have no responsibility for it whatsoever
1: well again much more at counterhate.com Imran thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon really appreciate this my pleasure all the best. Uh, Imran Ahmed is CEO of the uh, Center for Countering Digital Hate. And so uh, their report, The Disinformation Dozen, I think has really cast a spotlight on this problem, where it's coming from and what kind of a response is needed. We got a lot to get to on the program here this afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our number 974-TALK. Uh, among the topics up for conversation today, we are going to hear from uh, prominent Canadian epidemiologist, uh, Dr. David Fisman who was a co-author of a really interesting piece that ran last week in the journal Science, a rather prestigious medical and scientific journal. The authors say, we need a open and meaningful investigation into the origins of COVID-19. And that has to include exploring the possibility that this virus leaked from a lapse, specifically the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Not to say that it necessarily did, but it's not something we can rule out at this point. There, there is a lot of mystery at this point. So We'll talk about that. There was also a provocative piece that Dr. Fistman co-authored in The Globe and Mail last week, looking at some of the groups and individuals involved in some of the uh, anti-lockdown protests across the country. We'll talk about those issues. Dr. David Fistman coming up at 2 o'clock today. Also, security uh, expert Christian Luprecht, and a really fascinating uh, new report he's done for the McDonald laurier Institute on Canada's arms industry we think about those in the arms business, we tend not to think of Canadians or Canadian companies. But we certainly have that industry here. Maybe the most prominent example is the fact that we sell armored vehicles to Saudi Arabia, that plant in London, Ontario. It's got a lot of jobs associated with it, very important to the local economy. Should we be in the arms business? This report says we can remain in that industry, but maybe we need to tighten the rules up a little bit. So we'll talk about that this afternoon uh, as well. The latest on Line 5, where things stand on that pipeline in the dispute in Michigan. Talk about Bill C-10, this controversial government bill to overhaul the Broadcasting Act and try to regulate the Internet in the process. The Justice Minister is going to be testifying before committee today uh, as MPs try to get some answers on whether this bill violates the Constitution. So we'll talk about that. Some questions about uh, when and how Alberta students will be going back to school. The Alberta government still seems set on well a week from today, May twenty-fifth. Want to talk about the uh, arms industry? Obviously, this is uh, an industry that has some real security implications. When it comes to foreign policy, defence policy, it's something that, you know, the government has a vested interest in, in terms of what we're making and to whom we're selling it. Obviously the situation with armored vehicles being sold to Saudi Arabia, that's that's been a point of contention. That's one example. So what kind of rules uh, need to be in place? What kind of standards need to be in place? Who makes the decision and based on what criteria when it comes to the sorts of things that can be sold and, and to whom we're selling them? Uh, so that can be straight up weaponry. That can be the sort of technology that, that's used by, by military. So, you know, it, it does run the gamut. And, and obviously, as, as technology advances, it sort of broadens the, the umbrella in terms of what falls under this. There's a, an interesting report out from the McDonnell Laurier Institute called Understanding the Role of Weapon Exports in Canadian Foreign Policy. Now, what are the, the security implications of this? What kind of rules do we need in place here? How do we work with uh, our allies and uh, also work to ensure that this isn't benefiting uh, potential adversaries? You can read more at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Joining us to talk more about all of this is the author of this report. Uh, Christian Luprecht he is a monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. He is the Class of 1965 Professor in Leadership the Department of Political Science and Economics at the Royal Military College. Professor Luprecht, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
0: Good afternoon. Thanks for having me.
1: So how how big is is Canada's arms industry? We don't often think of Canada as a major player in this realm, but how, how significant are we?
0: I mean, it's, it's a it's a significant contribution in terms of what we make. I mean, we're in the top ten sort of globally, which sort of fits with our uh, with our economy and roughly sort of the uh, the contribution of our own um, um, of our own military. So, in 2018, for instance, seven billion dollar industry, uh, sixty four thousand jobs. Um, and what's interesting is that these are roughly sort of equally distributed sort of are, uh, across the country in terms of the different contributions by GDP that the different provinces make. So. Um, the The benefits uh, accrue to Canadians uh, right across the land
1: what kind of technology is being developed here? I mean we think of the arms industry maybe we think in in more analog terms of of guns or armored vehicles but there's a lot of you know sophisticated uh, technology that that falls under this umbrella doesn 't there
0: Yes, yeah, so I think that's a really important question because most of these firms are actually relatively small firms. So ninety percent of them have fewer than two hundred fifty employees, um, and so they develop highly specialized um, uh, uh, weaponry. Um, in the case, for instance, of uh, of the drones in, in Turkey, camera equipment, um, uh, propellers. Uh, so, so we're in a we're at the very high end of much of the uh, the arms manufacturing, but that. That's also then a... Uh um, it's it's a bit of a sword's edge here, um, a double-edged sword in the sense that because these firms are small and because our own military procurement system, as we all know, is uh, uh, not particularly well-functioning, uh, it means that these firms really um, live of exports. And so exports, in particular, of course, to the United States but to other NATO member countries um, are vital to, for, to this industry. And so any time the industry is unable to export exports are held up uh, that poses an existential threat to these firms and much of the technology that these firms develop uh, eventually also ends up having civilian benefits. Uh, Much of the communication technology, for instance, that we use today and we take for granted were all initially uh, developments that were made for the military.
1: In the case of Turkey, and, and you use that as an, as an example, there there was no ban on exports to Turkey. I mean, Turkey is ostensibly a NATO ally, but there there are clearly some, some concerns in terms of how this technology is being used. So to what extent is there a review or a government sign-off or at least even government awareness of these kinds of transactions?
0: Yeah, so the system... Um, hasn't adopted as well as it could in the sense that during the Cold War it was relatively easy. There were friends and there were enemies and uh, we exported to our friends and obviously we didn't export to our enemies. But now, many uh, countries that are allies or partners um, also have their own um, uh, foreign policy that diverges from our interests. In the case of Turkey, uh, rather aggressive, revisionist and hegemonic foreign policy. And so, export According to these partners, then comes with considerable risk. Now, Canada adhered last year to the Arms uh, Trade Treaty, which, um, in addition to uh, a host of four other regimes to which Canada is already part and parcel, means there are a host of constraints and risk assessments that any export goes through before an export license is actually granted. But it appears that in the case of Turkey, for instance, the um, uh, risk assessment that was prepared um, across uh, various departments to support this particular export license did not catch the broader geopolitical implications uh, to which these exports could potentially be used. And so that's both a function of how the risk assessment itself was framed, because ultimately the minister sets the criteria uh, for the risk assessment, but it is also a function of the fact that if we're going to export to dangerous regions, we should probably have better awareness. And given that we had, we don't have embassies in either Yerevan or Baku, um, so uh, Armenia is handled out of Moscow and Baku is handled out from our embassy in Turkey, it meant we also didn't have the awareness on the ground that we probably should have had if we're going to engage in these types of exports to Turkey. <laughs>
1: Right. So there's, there's the question of who we're selling to. There's the question of what's going to be done with it. I mean, at, at the end of the day, is this all about trying to avoid having blood on our hands?
0: So it is very much about human rights, ultimately, and making sure that our weapons technology is not being misused. And this is really what's Uh, at stake here. When we export technology and these licenses are granted, um, those who obtain the technology provide a written assurance, a guarantee in terms of their end use. So there are conditions that Canada will attach. You can use it for this and this purpose, but you can't use it for that and that purpose. And so in this particular case, it appears that Turkey uh, knowingly and deliberately misled the Canadian government in seeking uh, the export license, knowing that it would want to uh, use these drones um, in uh, countries and in environments um, that it had not disclosed to Canada. And so that's really what's ultimately fundamentally problematic about this particular Case. And so the legitimacy of the entire arms control regime, not just in Canada, but with our allies and partners, hinges on these end use agreements and the conditions to which partner countries agree. And so this is why it is key and why other Partner countries have joined Canada in, for the time being, ceasing um, weapons exports and export uh, control licenses to Turkey uh, until we can find a way to reestablish both the legitimacy of the regime and the integrity of the partnership with Turkey because, of course, we do not, we want to avoid at any and all costs emboldening countries to um, uh, abuse the regime um, to preserve the integrity because in this case it's not just about having blood on our hands it is the fact that turkey effectively used canadian technology to fundamentally change the geopolitical status quo in the region in a way that was not in canada's interests and arguably also not in nato's and our allied interests and so we don't want to have our technology used to have partners then instrumentalize it for purposes that fundamentally run counter to our own interests.
1: So does that mean we take it on a case-by-case basis? And in this instance, we say, okay, we don't like how this unfolded, so no more doing business with Turkey. Does that take care of the problem?
0: So uh, these are difficult circumstances because, of course, Turkey is a NATO member, ally, and however difficult the relationship with Turkey is, Turkey is critical to uh, the regional dynamics um, in the neighborhood in which it 's finds itself, and this is of course why Turkey was admitted uh, to NATO in the first place and was an early member because it is geostrategically so important. The problem is that the current regime has exploited that um, relationship um, to advance its um, a very peculiar foreign policy agenda that is not aligned with our interests and so the challenge for for Canada and for NATO member allies is how do we rein in Turkey's behavior in this particular regard, but also how do we make sure, for instance, that other countries that are in receipt of Canadian technology, think, for instance, of Saudi Arabia, um, to make sure that we can reassure Canadians that uh, our weapons export system can preserve the integrity for which the arms are are fundamentally being exported and it 's interesting that Saudi Arabia is one of the countries that immediately became the most concerned about how Turkey was using Canadian technology because Saudi Arabia knows that precisely this type of ba- bad press. Um, is what uh, also runs counter to its own interests. And so we want to incentivize countries to because if we think of weapons export as a foreign policy instrument, it allows us to influence the decision-making and the conduct by countries where we might otherwise have some concerns And so we also need to understand, then, weapons not just as sort of a tool that anybody can do with whatever they want, but rather as an opportunity for us to enable or to constrain certain types of behavior, in particular in regions that are as volatile as the Middle East.
1: Some very important points here. Much more is mentioned. McDonnellLaurier.ca. Christian Louprec, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
0: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
1: All the best. Uh, Christian Luprecht, uh, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at McDonald laurier Institute, also at the Royal Military College, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.